the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. It's Carrie here. This is episode 529. Today, we are going to talk to Brian Koppelman. Uh, first time we've really had a Hollywood, well, really New York showrunner. He is the creative force behind Billions, Rounders, Ocean's 13, Super Pumped, and so much more. Also, Tracy Chapman, Eddie Murphy, back in the old early days. We'll talk about all that. Uh, really glad you're tuning in. And today's episode is brought to you by Compassion International. You can meet a practical need for a child in poverty this holiday season by going to Compassion.com slash giving tree slash carry. Let's get in the corner of the less fortunate this year and by Future Forward Churches. Lee Kreitcher has a brand new book called Seamless Pastoral Transition and other free pastoral transition resources. You can find it by going to futureforwardchurches.com. Well, uh, this was a fun episode. I've been following Brian for years. We have a couple of mutual friends and listening to his podcast, The Moment, for a while. And I thought it would be really interesting. I've always been curious about how Hollywood works, movies work, uh, writing scripts go. And Brian is a perfect uh, person to talk to about that. He is the co-creator and executive producer and showrunner of the Showtime television show Billions and Super Pumped. Before that, he worked on some pretty awesome films. And uh, as he says in his bio, one or two that are less good. I don't know about that. He has a hit podcast, The Moment, and he lives in New York City, which is where he does uh, most of his work. He is also responsible for Rounders, which we talk about, uh, Ocean's 13, and he's done a number of other films as well. So I think you're really going to enjoy this. And I love digging into the backstory. So one thing, for those of you who listen regularly to the podcast, you're going to pick up. Brian casually mentions he has ADHD. This is now a running theme on this show. So we go deep on that. And he, I also spend about mm, two-thirds of the interview talking about all of his journey before he became successful, before he filmed Rounders with Matt Damon or did Ocean's 13 or any of that stuff for which he became known. And uh, I just think it's fascinating. I think there's a lot of young creatives listening to the show. And so I hope you're going to love this episode as much as I do. Thank you to John Acuff for introducing us. John's coming up soon on the podcast, by the way. I think maybe next episode. Anyway, really excited to bring you this episode. Why do we go all over the place on this podcast? Because we just follow the curiosity trail. I just think there are some fascinating people in this world. Brian is one of them. And if you've ever wondered what it's like to be behind the scenes on a movie with uh, George Clooney and Brad Pitt, well, you're going to find out today. There's a fun story in it. So want to thank our partners for today's episode. Compassion International is doing some great stuff this Christmas. I absolutely love them. Our church has partnered with them. My wife and I have partnered with them. And wherever they serve around the world, which is 26 countries, they partner with the local church and they release children from poverty in Jesus' name. How can you be against that? So, you know what your church is looking for this Christmas? People are going to start asking you, what are you doing for people in the world around Christmas? That's why you should check out Compassion's cool opportunity. It's called The Giving Tree. It's a simple way for you to share the love of Christ with kids in need. All you do is you decorate a tree with ornaments. They represent a variety of gift options. People pick a gift, they give, and they help release a child from poverty in Jesus' name. So check it out. You can go to compassion.com slash giving tree slash carry. I'm going to say that one more time compassion.com slash giving tree slash C-A-R-E-Y. That's my name, Carrie. You can get your free kit there. And pastoral transitions are inevitable for every church. Unfortunately, a lot of the time, 
They don't go well. I've heard horror story after horror story, but sometimes they do. And I've known Lee Kreitcher for years, and he navigated a very successful transition. He's got a brand new book that's going to help you with this. It's called Seamless Pastoral Transition. It'll help you navigate the dynamics without negatively impacting the momentum, continuity, or the mission of your church. It also has some great insights about three transitional imperatives that are really critical to address and six pastoral transition pitfalls to avoid that can honestly jettison the whole thing. So if you're a church leader, you need to grab it because one of your highest priorities should be succession. It's called Seamless Pastoral Transition. And if you go to Future Forward Churches, you'll get the book, but you can also get some free transition resources. So go to futureforwardchurches.com to grab Lee Kreitcher's new book. Well, I'm very excited for this episode. And if you're up for the adventure, let's go. Here is my conversation with Brian Koppelman. Brian, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Carrie, I'm so happy to be here with you. Well, thanks for saying yes. And uh, we have a good mutual friend in John Acuff. And when he made the introduction, I've been listening to your podcast and like a lot of other people watching your work for years. So it's a thrill to have this conversation. And I want to go back um, to sort of the early days, uh, your teenage years. You're best known for your work in television and on movies, but you started um, managing bands in high school. So I believe there's a connection to your dad with that. I know a lot of musicians, a lot of teenagers want to play in bands, but managing a band, that's a little bit different. So do you want to take us back to that time I'm, and what yeah, fueled I'm, that? Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. You know, I'm 56 years old and I was doing the stuff you're talking about from 13 to 16. So it's, it's funny when we think about the various versions of ourselves and the sort of things we were certain about at various times. I, I, I really, what I enjoy about that is it, it forces me to reckon with the fact that the things I'm certain about now, uh, in five years, I might not really, um, relate to or understand. And in fact, my certainty about whatever the path is, I should be really open to the fact that, um, I could learn something entirely new tomorrow and, and change gears. So, but if I, yeah, look, my, I'm one of those lucky people. Uh, I have a wonderful relationship with my father and I always have had a wonderful relationship with my father. And, uh, he's older, uh, now and I was spending a lot, a lot of time with him lately and with my kids too. And, um, I was telling my kids, uh, that the amount of time when I think about my dad and my childhood, kind of the first thing I think of is the sound uh, baseball makes when it hits a mitt because of all the hours that he spent throwing and catching with me. And he's my hero as a kid, you know, and he was an executive. In, he was really a, a, a music publisher and a record producer. And a lot of the way we spent time was listening to music. He was really hands-on. He became more of an executive later, but he was really hands-on in that all versions of that process. And he would come home with like just uh, bags of uh, cassette tapes. And from when I was really young, um, he and my mom treated me like someone who um, could process information like a grown-up could. I had a really severe ADHD. I had a really difficult time um, executing uh, alongside my classmates on their schedule with uh, lots of the schoolwork stuff. But somehow when I was fascinated by something, when something was really compelling, uh, I could throw my whole self into it and I could, um, really achieve a lot. And I think my folks were certainly like anyone would be 
especially back then when no one knew what ADHD was, I think they um, were pretty concerned about how it would all turn out regarding things like a school. But because I had these uh, interests in other things, one of which was music, they were in, but I wasn't a, I wasn't a musician back then. Um, now I spent a lot of time writing songs and pl playing guitar, but back then um, I just understood um, I think in a way that was kind of beyond my years, just because of the hours, I'd probably spent so many hours critically listening to songs from the age of six to 13, that it was like I had a 25 year old's kind of knowledge base. Um, and so mm -hmm. when I saw a kid in my high school or my junior high school, who was really good at, at playing music. I immediately thought like, well, there's this club nearby and I bet you I could get the guy who owns the club to let my friend play in with his band at lunch, like at noon on a Saturday before the bands play at night. And it was a way to get into that club and go see bands at night. And I somehow <laughs> just kind of everything I'd picked up about how the business worked from listening to my dad's phone calls and listening to records with him um, and tapes. Uh, I'm, I, I just went to my friend and I was like, if I can, well, the first thing was, the first thing was the principal wouldn't let my friend play at a, um, he didn't want rock music at like a school assembly. And <laughs> right. I right. said to my friend, I was like, I bet you I can convince the principal. And I went and like made a whole presentation and got the, uh, the thing. And then it was like, well, I bet I could get us into this club at lunchtime. And so I just started, but it wasn't like to make any money. I, I mean, I definitely lost money making posters for like the afternoon thing, but it was incredible to just sort of like be able to then enter the world where, where, where I grew up, the drinking age was still 18 then. And so I couldn't go to, you know, there was no other way I could go see the music, but by getting to know that this club owner and then some of the bands that were just bubbling under to where they were going to be able to play at the clubs, I was able to go to these places and watch music. I would roadie, like very light roadie work as a 14 year old, not much I could carry, but I would help load in. Like I would take the guitars. And as a result of that, I got to go hang out at these clubs, um, you know, bars really. And I wasn't a drinker. I've never really been a drinker. Um, you know, I'm not a teetotaler. I'm not in a program, but I'm just never been a big drinker. So there yeah. was kind of no danger in hanging around other than what I would see or over here, which was plenty, but it was um, an amazing experience. I mean, so much of what you do when you're young, Carrie, isn't well thought out or, or I could try to put reasons on it, but the truth is you're, you're going by like your instincts and desires and abilities and I was just naturally drawn to all that. And I, they were very valuable experiences for me because when you're a kid who's not succeeding in school, but everyone's telling you you're a bright person and you should be, you're an underachiever. Uh, you love reading. I loved to read, but I couldn't read certain school books because of the way I, my brain was built. I would, uh, it was like they were radioactive, but I would, there were things I loved. And then to have a thing that I could call my own and really manifest and do was so meaningful. And it made me have a sense that, okay, if I follow my curiosities and enthusiasms, maybe I can like find a path, even if it's not a, um, as traditional a path, you know? You know, it's interesting now, and uh, regular listeners of this podcast will know I'm picking up on a theme already. We're 550 episodes in. We've been doing this for a few years, like you have with your show, Brian. And 
um, the number of people who've done significant things with their life who look back at their childhood and they have ADHD or dyslexia, but ADHD comes up more than almost any other quote, disorder. And I'm sure you're probably familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's work in David and Goliath, where he makes the argument of dyslexia that people like Richard Branson succeeded because of their dyslexia, not in spite of it. So how did you, because I think, you know, statistically, if it's a leadership podcast, I probably have ADD that has been not diagnosed, but by friends who are medical physicians, they're like, yeah, you definitely have it. Um, what did that look like for you? And how did you learn the work around ADD or ADHD? It was really, um, well, what it looked like was failure. Right. I mean, what it looked like was not being able to do the work and being told that I was lazy and undisciplined. And um, mm. what it felt like was, it, it, what it felt like to me was an inner sense of doom that I couldn't do the very simple things that everybody else could do. And it manifested in all sorts of different areas. But you know, cleaning my room was an impossibility. Organizing my albums, no chance. Uh, um, and really what drove me crazy was I was fascinated. I've always been fascinated with words. I always loved to read books that were way beyond my grade level. And, um, but I, it wasn't just that I didn't want to read the dry history book. I swear to you, it was like the book was radioactive and it was keeping me away. And it's a thing that people with real ADHD understand. You want to be able to do the thing and you are unable to. And um, look, the workaround for me, I, I was lucky in many ways. I was lucky that I came from an economically solid background. My parents were able to provide for us. So I didn't worry about, you know, there, I didn't have to get a job when I was in middle school or yeah. high school. I could do what I wanted to. I didn't have to pay my own way through college, which to me is the biggest blessing in the world is if your family can pay for college. So you get out of college with, with no debt. I was also verbally gifted. So I had certain things that were really fortunate, right? I was, and, um, I mean, the stories I told you, I was at 13 able to walk into rooms of grownups away from a school environment. And for whatever reason, I had really very good uh, skill set at like being able to lock in, focus, listen to a decision maker and influence that person because mm -hmm. I would have done the thing I was fascinated by, compelled by, I was able to go all the way in on this hyper-focus thing that happens you know, when I would read a book I liked, you could basically hit me on the head and uh, with a baseball bat and I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't become, dis I wouldn't even notice you because I was, uh, had disappeared into the work, right? And so um, it's not so much that I found a workaround, it's that I found work, a way to work through. I just, or, or actually, I just found a way to um, take myself out of uh, caring about being judged um, or letting those judgments of those institutions render any kind of final verdict on me because I was doing something always that was outside of it that interested me enough that it fueled me and kept me going. 
Mom, also I had understanding parents, meaning they were scared and I would get in trouble, you know, before I would get in trouble, you know, and, and, yeah. uh, lose phone privileges and lose going out. I mean, all that stuff. My parents cared and did, you know, were actively trying to yeah. make sure that, that, um, because there was no diagnosis of that back then. There was no medicine back then. And it, it, there wasn't even like really like, um, a therapeutic model that didn't include medicine. It was just like, Hey dude, do the work. Don't be so lazy. Uh, don't be disruptive. So, and it was, uh, it was very painful at, at many, uh, stops along the way, you know, but also my mother was really determined to convince me that I was bright and mm. that this wouldn't matter. And as sort of frightened as I know she must have been by what teachers in the schools said, she was kind of undaunted in telling me that I would find things that I really would want to work on and that I was like smart enough to be able to pull any of that stuff off. And what that led to was like when I wanted to get into college and I, my grades were really bad, you know, I'm sure my standardized scores were fine, uh, fully competitive with the college I wanted to get to, but I, <laughs> and this is the kind of thing I would do before people did this kind of thing. Like I remember going to college to be interviewed and they tell you, you know, follow up, but I didn't just follow up. Like I would write the person and call the person and I would ask to come visit again and I would send things, you know, like in 10th grade, I produced a uh, song on an album that got put out. And I remember I kind of was like building the case because I knew I wanted to go to this college. And I remember kind of building the case that I wouldn't contribute in normal, ordinary ways. And I might not on paper be the kind of student who seemed like this, but that if they took a chance on me, I would reward them in some way. And, you know, years later when all this good stuff happened. I reached out to that person and thanked them because, you know, had I not gone to Tufts, you know, certain things wouldn't have happened. And like, I still, that person and I still follow each other on Facebook. Like I made a real connection with this person and I, I really made the kind of appeal. I guess people make these packages now, but, but because I knew I couldn't succeed in the channels that everyone else succeeded. And because I had supportive parents and a safety net, on some level, I would just try different channels. And I just kept doing that my whole life, basically. Later, much later, I got diagnosed and I um, was able to get medicine. And I find that to be incredibly helpful uh, at times and in certain ways, uh, because the challenges the other ways are, are so hard. But I just kept, man, I just kept moving, you know? It's interesting, you know, uh, a little bit of my life was flashing before my eyes too. I'm reading a book right now that's rather academic and I'm really having trouble accessing it. Like, I think you're right. Certain books are radioactive, like they you can't touch it. Others you just get lost in and they're such a beautiful, yes. easy read. And there are certain things, uh, you know, it almost feels, and I don't, I don't want to like put an analysis on your life that might be premature or incomplete, but I think a lot of us who struggle in traditional areas maybe just find workarounds. Do you know what I mean? So the club at 14 and this musician is a workaround. Well, maybe I can't, I can't do so well at math or maybe English isn't my strong suit, but man, I can negotiate. You know, you end up at law school, which is really impressive. I mean, that's well, not easy I decide, yeah. And, and I would say like, that's all, that's all correct. Um, hmm. 
But the biggest, most painful thing that took me so many years to figure out was that it was really hard for me to finish papers and I'm a writer and I was always like, if I really would have, I mean, you add the things up that I was so really that, that, that grabbed me. I mean, when I talk about reading and, and I would memorize movies and know all the dialogue and I could always write two paragraphs that would knock your socks off, but I, I couldn't finish anything. And that was really the worst of it to me was I just could not organize and I could not finish. And, and knowing that makes you not even start, right? If you know that you're going to be defeated because you can't finish, it's really difficult to start and then do that to yourself again and make you disappoint yourself again. I guess that's what it felt like to me, constant disappointment in myself which is a really disempowering way to live. And, and it's, I can look back now and of course, like I have found, um, I live a really fulfilling life, but I'm never that far from what it felt like. And so I don't want to be glib about it and make it like it was easy. I mean, it was painful, you know, and it was, yeah. cause yeah. if anyone's listening, like I understand at the time, you know, those things didn't feel, they felt like escapes right? They felt like many escapes. There was no plan like, oh, there's going to be a career. Like there was a plan with getting into college, but but it was born out of desperation. It was born out of, I want to try to be around really smart people. How am I going to do that Uh, when my grades don't announce myself in that way at all? Uh, And and law school was really about a series of things, um, but one of which was tr- just trying to, again, this is before uh, an official diagnosis. I think I'd started to maybe read books on, on ADHD. Um, but once I was there, I really did want to find a way. I was older to train myself to get this, this work done, you know? Um, hmm. Yeah, that stuff was always, uh, it was really a battle. But, but what's fascinating to me is you did have some success early on. I mean, whether it was that nightclub when you were in junior high or, um, you know, meeting Eddie Murphy very early in his career. I think he was already on Saturday Night Live. Uh, if I've got the story right, you helped negotiate his first comedy album, first couple. And then Tracy Chapman when you were at Tufts. Was that at Tufts or law school that you yeah. met Tracy oh, Chapman? Tufts. Yeah, tell us tell us about that because well, I mean again, it's these really are things from a long time ago. But yeah, there. Look, I I I mean that's part of what I'm what um. I mean, part of what would happen was that I I would. I don't know. I made a decision to kind of follow whatever I was curious about, and yeah, through through this nightclub that I was booking concerts at, I then became friendly with the owner of that club and. Eddie Murphy was performing there and yeah, he was a featured player on SNL and he, he was so great. It's a long story, but I don't want to take the whole podcast over that. I, I, yeah. but I snuck backstage and I met Eddie and his manager and I said, you should be making an album. And they hadn't thought about doing that. And I talked them through why, or they might've thought about it, but they hadn't done anything on it. And then I woke my father up when I got home and I, I was like, you got to meet these people. And I'd gotten all their information and connected them. And then they made a deal. And my dad made the first three Eddie Murphy albums that were enormously successful. And for sure that happened because I went back and did that. So hundred, you know, that's the way that happened. And well, in college, it's a much longer story, but that's an example where in college I was, you know, one of the people leading the, the movement against apartheid and for divestment, um, it was social justice movement, not in the way that it's necessarily designed, defined now, but you know, um, 
Elaine Pagels. Like I remember reading Elaine oh, Pagels yeah. in this um, class I was in about social justice. I mean, this is in the eighties with this Reverend named Reverend Graylin Hagler and, and getting him to come speak at this event. And, the, and we were doing all campus event to promote this idea that the school should divest from investing in companies doing business in apartheid South Africa. And um, a friend said that uh, I should go, there was this folk singer on campus. I should get to play at this rally. And that was Tracy Chapman. And I ended up working with Tracy and producing her demos. And my dad and I got her first record deal. And that was with fast car. And you know, that, so yeah, there were, there were markers along the way that supported my mother's belief that I wasn't going to end up, you know, uh, never fulfilling, you know, my, my desires to, um, make some kind of a mark. But, um, but none of that was really, and, and that was, look, uh, Helping Tracy get that music to the world is one of the greatest things I'll ever do, no matter what. Mm. Um, but that was her art, you know, her work. I was a conduit. Um, but, you know, shortly thereafter, that became less satisfying um, to me, you know. And you, you had a moment, didn't you, Brian? Uh, does that involve the Counting Crows demo? Was that well, there were a couple sort of, of them, yeah, that, There were a yeah. couple of those moments. But um, yeah, I told the story to Adam Duritz. Um, you know, of Counting Crows, um, on my podcast and we're pretty friendly now. And, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I loved music so much. It was so important to me and, and I cared about it so much, but I was in the record industry. I, I'd realized and it really, and it crystallized that I, that this love I had for it stopped being as pure. And when that happened was somebody played me a demo of Round Here, the first song in August and everything after. And, I mean, just when I heard those lyrics um, and him singing, uh, I immediately knew how big it would be. But I remember what I felt was instead of what I'd felt my whole life, which is I want to proselytize. I want to call all my friends. I want to get everybody to know. Instead, I felt anger and jealousy that I wasn't the one who'd found it, that this friend guy I knew, I mean, he didn't, this guy I knew had the tape and he said some other people who were in the, you know, A&R talent scouting thing had found it. But I, what was great for me was I felt that emotion and then I, I didn't give in to it. I checked in. I I kind of checked in on it, and I knew that was a troubling sign as to where I was in my life. And at that point, that you were night. an A and R, right? You were in the music. Yeah, I was an A and R, and I was doing that, and that was my. I figured yeah. what I would do, but you know, a bunch of different moments had up um, where I I I realized this work wasn't making me happy for a variety of reasons. But really, what happened was my our first Amy and my first child was born, and. Shortly after Sam was born, I found myself in my office. I had gone 29 years of my life without ever smoking a cigarette. And suddenly I was so unhappy with the stack of demo tapes I was supposed to listen to in this office job. And it was a good job and I was, you know, doing well. But I was smoking cigarettes and I was eating a double cheeseburger late at night, staring at this box of tapes I was supposed to listen to. And suddenly it occurred to me, I was also during this time period often getting up in the middle of the night and I would write, I would start writing the beginnings of stories or the beginnings of scenes, screenplay scenes. Mm -hmm. And I would never kind of look at it again. And I would never finish. Yeah. I was sitting in this office and I was thinking about our, you know, four or five month old son. And I realized that if I allowed myself to stay a blocked writer, I had this thought that, Mm. Uh, if I allowed the creative impulse in me to die, if I allowed being blocked to win, 
that if this creative impulse died, it would be like any other kind of death and it would have toxicity to it. And that toxicity would ooze out of me onto the people I loved because I would turn bitter. I would turn angry. I would turn my self-recriminations into not really being the kind of parent or husband I wanted to be or human I wanted to be. Mm. And I knew I had to find a way suddenly to become an artist, not to become someone near artists. And I had to become a storyteller. Uh, all my friends were writers, or most of them were. I, I was, I was, I cared more about all that than, than anything except my, my family. And um, hmm. I went to my best friend, my lifelong best friend, David Levine. He was tending bar across town. And he gave me Julia Cameron's book, The Artist's Way. I said, look, we got to, I got to do this. And he said, I'll write a script with you. We'll do this together. Cause he'd been wanting to do the same thing and he'd started to. Mm. And um, he said, but read this book, do the exercises. And he gave me The Artist's Way. And I began doing the art. And my wife, and Amy had always said to me for years, we got married young. And um, she had always said like, there's, you're meant to do more than, than what you're doing and you should do all these things. And you, you know, and I came home and I remember saying to her and she said, I'm going to clean out the storage space underneath our apartment. And that's going to be your writing office. And, uh, she did it the next day. And we had this, you know, young baby at home. And she still said like, I, this is what, this is right. And so Dave gave me artist where I started doing the exercises. And as soon as I started doing the morning pages and the artist dates and taking the walks and realizing a bunch of stuff about why I felt I could never become this. Everything opened up. And um, hmm. shortly there and thereafter, I, I mean, I walked into a poker club at night because I was playing a lot of poker. And a friend of mine told me about this underground poker club. And I walked in and, you know, called Levine in the middle of the night. And I was like, I know what we're making our first script about. And we started meeting up and wrote the first script. And that script became, you know, rounders. And so once I made the decision, and that had a lot of rejection, but once I made that decision, um, and and look, one of the things about people with ADHD that's really proven and studied is when you're on a team, you're much better. And so because I had to show up with David and he was going to show up every day and do this work, I was going to show up every day and do this work. And he was amazing at keeping me kind of anchored a little bit and anchored enough to together get there and be able to write this thing and 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 we worked that way for a number of years and then finally um i figured this stuff out um for myself and um ended up finding um a psychiatrist who helped really diagnose it and figure out how to how to treat it and then i was able to start really being able to write still always with david and that we make all the stuff together but um i was able to write a script alone that we then directed together with michael douglas in it and it, uh, through all this work, I've been mostly able to manage, um, you know, my, my state and, and the attention issues. Well, it's interesting because you say on the one hand, it's hard to focus on the other hand, you can get hyper-focused. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And that was one of my questions, you know, I'm, I'm far from the cinemata, uh, you know, cinematic world. I've always been fascinated by movies. I love them, but I rewatched Rounders getting ready for this along with Ocean's 13 yeah. and others. And the thing, the, the gift, the superpower that amazes me, like Rounders, I mean, I don't really play cards. I sort of do, you know, just with yeah. friends or whatever. But the amount of technical 
knowledge. Like you immerse yourself in a world, whether that's billions, whether that's Oceans 13, whether that's rounders. I mean, yes. a card player, like like the best on the planet has to watch that movie and, and say, this guy gets it. How do, how do you do that kind of like immersion or research well, that into comes a from subject? That, I mean, it sounds this, so... Like I'd say, you know, if you're, if you're listening to this, I mean, this is one of those words, like, unfortunately the word passion is kind of lost on meaning because it's yeah. overused yeah. and it, I don't know what it stands in for. It kind of stands in for like these wishy, this is, but when I talk about, like I had such um, a fanatical passion for what it meant to be a poker player and like mm -hmm. the way poker players communicated and what they thought about when they were playing cards. And I was so curious about how they lived their lives. Like, imagining that someone just shows up with like their, their cash and a little gangster roll of, you know, cash, you know, rolled together, like in Goodfellas or something. And they uh -huh. show up and live their lives by sitting at a poker table across from someone. Like it was so unbelievably fascinating to me that all I wanted to do was think about it, learn more about it and read more about it to the exclusion of like everything else though. I mean, that's the, what happens, right? So, Maybe someone would read five poker books. I read a hundred poker books. Like I read, <laughs> I became friends with this guy who ran, there was a bookstore called the Gambler's Bookshop in, outside of Vegas. And back then there was no internet. Like you'd find, find the advertisement in a, a, a magazine, card player magazine. And I, you know, I would write a letter to him and I, or I would call the guy. His name was Chuck. I mean, I, I still very distantly know him and his name was Chuck Weinstock. And I would, I would like, call him and be like, any new poker books coming in? Or by these, and he would send me, I would buy all these poker books, you know, six bucks for this one, nine bucks for this one, 11. I remember, and Amy again was just like, yeah, whatever you have to do for, for this, you know? And I would read all these books and, 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 and with a pen, you know? And I, I would find uh, these interesting words or these interesting, and and you, what happens is, is uh, I, it doesn't feel like this is the gift of ADHD. The gift is when you are working on one of the things that grabs you, it doesn't feel like work. Writing, look, writing, rewriting, editing, those things are, there's pressure. So there's war, it's work. But when I'm editing, um, you know, when I'm editing the show, not editing on paper, like editing the, the mm -hmm. footage with an editor, I'm lost in that process. It, I'm taken over by that process. And so that's the gift of it, where that part of it, the hours spent solving those problems is, I get energized by that, you know? So, um, yeah, yeah, those details, I mean, it was so important. We were so obsessive, David and I together, the two of us were really, again, obsessed is another word that kind of loses meaning, but I mean, we never didn't meet. We met every single morning and before work, you know, he would come back from tending bar and it was before I would go off to work. And we meet so early in the morning and we work for two solid hours, sometimes two and a half. And we were so focused on what we were trying to do. And I mean, I, every single word in that thing mattered and getting every poker scene right to the extent of our abilities mattered so, so much. I mean, we really did feel like characters in a Springsteen song, like putting it all on the line, you know? And, um, yeah. and it was probably in a hopeless effort, but we didn't care. We just had to do it. And, um, look, I mean, I still spend every day with Dave and, and we're huh. still, 
uh, you know, I'm still spend every night with my wife, like the same person and those same kids. So that part of my life has stayed incredibly solid and, and the same. And, um, I'm still totally focused on those things in a, in a joyous way. I want to talk, I want to come back to your partnership. Uh, cause I think that's remarkable for it to have lasted basically an entire lifetime. But, you know, if I, if I understand right, you did a great interview with, um, John Acuff on his first podcast, The Creative Slide, which we'll link to. It's still up there, which I'm grateful for. It was a great interview. He's got a new podcast now called All It Takes as a Goal. But um, I, I seem to remember, was this a side hustle for you, writing rounders? Like you had your day job and then you get together or did you quit your day job and then- No, I mean, I didn't, then, this goes in line, really in line with a lot of what Acuff talks about. But um, yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. No, I'm, I mean, nobody was using the term side hustle then. Right. But I think if you were not, like, I think, but I do think like if you were doing some kind of artistic endeavor, yeah, some people might have that bolt of lightning moment and like decide they're going to throw everything else away. But I had, I mean, I had a child and I knew we were going to have another child. So I just decided to expand my day, basically. Like I was just yeah. going to, but doing it first in the day. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It it made the, the drudgery of my job much less. Like, so, because the day would start with the thing where, and it was very hard writing the first thing. Like, you don't know what you're doing and you're just trying so hard and you know you're failing most of the time. And But I felt so alive. Carrie, like, mm. yeah. I, I was working from the better way to say it. I was working from the most alive part of myself. And because of that, then when I would have to go to meetings and stuff, conference rooms, it didn't matter to me because I had already done this thing where I was working from this really alive place. And I think mornings, even though people always talk about it on podcasts and it's another cliched thing. And I'm not one of those people who's like the super achiever, like my morning has, you know, uh, like one of these guys selling a lot of stuff. Um, but I meditate and I do morning pages every day and it, it does start. And I try to, I exercise every day. And those things I would say are also really part of, the way as an adult, I've, I've, I've tried to handle these things as like, if I meditate every day and if I can journal and if I can exercise and, and look on some days, maybe I got the COVID, the newest COVID booster. So today I'm just walking, but most days I do like pretty rigorous exercise, but I do something like I, I'll walk probably five miles outside today as just like a casual to do something. And I don't know, doing those things really, uh, it really helps. So the morning getting to um, do a thing in the morning that kind of sets me right for the day is really, really valuable. And it started back then, I think, because we would do that work. And then that just like kind of set me up to succeed the rest of the day, whether or not that thing was going to happen and become um, objectively successful. So I think a lot of the audience would know Rounders. I mean, it had who uh, Matt Damon, Edward Norton, uh, John Turturro, Gretchen Mole. I mean, yeah, really, John Malkovich. Yeah, John Malkovich. Yeah, I mean, it was a it was a killer movie, and it did very very well, particularly in the last twenty years. It had a decent opening, but it's just become almost cult like, right? Well, in, correct, and I, that following. was a real gift in a certain way that it didn't, you know. The movie came out and it didn't do that well in the box office, but within a year. So we had this moment of, 
having to take stock and figure out like, well, why are we doing this? Like, are we doing it because we wanted some kind of success or we, no, we're doing it because we love doing this and we're going to, so the, like the weekend that it was coming out, we were already somewhere researching our next movie and working um, on the next thing. And we never stopped. Um, and, uh, and then watching the way that the work got received two years later, three years later, five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, it, I would watch critics who who dinged it when it came out 10 years later, write a review about something else and then say like uh, in the classic rounders. And, and I was like, but dude, you didn't like that movie 10 years ago, but it made <laughs> me put so much stuff in perspective and, and kind of reaffirmed that I have to be Dave and I have to be the only kind of um, inner authority on what we're doing and that we can't kind of like give that, power to any other entity, whether it's a buyer or whether it's a critic or whether it's an audience, right. you don't want to be self-indulgent. You want to serve the audience, but only way it works for us is to imagine the audience is us and then just entertain ourselves and then have the faith that ultimately our, uh, that audience will find the piece. And, you know, now 25 years later of doing this work, uh, we've proven that out for us. There, there, there is a group of people. It's not the biggest group of people, but it's not the smallest group of people who really care about the work that we do. And that is something Seth always talks about. You don't need the biggest audience in the world. You just need an audience that loves what you do and that relates to what you do. And if you don't break the compact with that audience, if if they don't sense that you're gaming them or you're, con, you know, you're trying to do something else, but they know you're doing what you do for the same reasons, you're probably not going to lose that audience. You're probably going to grow it. For the uh, budding artists, uh, leaders whose stuff hasn't been picking, you know, taken up yet or, or caught fire yet, uh, how did Rounders get made? It wasn't an automatic thing, was it? No, we we dealt with a lot of rejection. Um, I just, it's funny, I, I had Neil Blumenthal, who founded and is the CEO of Warby Parker on my podcast last week, uh, this week. Mm. And he was telling me this great story of their first big pitch and they just got destroyed by a person they most wanted. And uh, the person was a billionaire and super good at this um, premium brand thing. And he just destroyed them, basically said, you know, this isn't going to work and here's why. And you basically should give up. And um, I was so interested in what he did when he walked away from that meeting with his partners uh, because... I'm, um, I'm always thinking about how we keep going as human beings mm. facing, mm -hmm. as human beings who try to be artists or who try to put pieces of themselves out there and how rough rejection can be and how much it hurts. Uh, and learning how to absorb that blow and then disambiguate and figure out, well, okay, what three things are valid is there anything valid in in the critique if there if you can get away from the emotional reaction so breathe take long enough if you can find something of value to make the thing better great if you can't dismiss it and just keep moving forward and so i got this lesson really early on because all these agencies rejected rounders i wrote down what they all said one said it was overwritten one said it was underwritten neither of those terms have any meaning they didn't then or now all these kinds of things then um, a young producer, a young manager got it to a young producer's kind of like 
like the most junior producer in an office, uh, uh, and that person got it to their boss, and they brought it to Miramax, and Miramax bought the thing. And the next day after Miramax bought it, like all the same agents who passed were all on our phone sheet. And I just read all of them, their reasons for rejecting us. And I, and I, and cause the rejections hurt so much cause it was the first time and they yeah. all had all these BS excuses, you know, Oh, well, I was my assistant who read it or I was having a bad day or I read the wrong draft. I mean, all these lies. And it just made me realize like, Oh, right. These are lemmings. They're going to follow this thing. I can't think that they're yes. And you need, you need to work with these conduits and you want to pick the smartest one or the one you think has the best instinct for, but what you can't do is imbue them with qualities of discernment that they don't actually have. And that doesn't mean cluelessly going like, I'm right. All these people are wrong. Right. It doesn't mean insisting that you're a genius. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is, Don't give them more power than they have and find a way to be objective about your own material and keep trying to make it better and keep writing the next thing and keep developing the next. I didn't stop. As we were getting rejected, we were already writing the next thing. And that's the thing, right? Keep, just keep controlling what you can control and don't empower, uh, don't give more power than is true to the various forces along the way that you can't control. I appreciate you taking so much time on the deep dive of origins. We have a lot of young leaders listening, so I think they're going to take a lot of inspiration from that. I do want to shift a little bit and talk about um, Amy Edmondson from Harvard, had her on, and she talked about complex leadership and used the example of a movie set or healthcare institution. So, you know, I have a heart attack today. I end up in ER And there's a team of doctors, whoever's on call, the doctors, the nurses, the assistants, all those people come together to do life-saving surgery. It's quite an extraordinary feat of leadership. But movies are probably similar. Like with Billions or Super Pumped, your latest project, you probably get to build your own team. And I'd like to talk about that. But when you're coming together to do a movie that might take, I don't know, three months to eight months to make, you're pulling this team of people, most of whom you don't know together. What are some of the keys to success from, you know, talent actors to producers to key grips? Like it's a masterful thing to pull together, Brian. Let me just first say, um, people in my industry, me include all of us, definitely like at times feel like we're in the, like we're saving, we work so hard and, and like, it all feels so important. It's almost like we're saving lives. But can I just be clear that we're not the doctors you're talking about, the healthcare people? <laughs> there's no similarity. I mean, what they no have to do and what we're doing. Enough. I mean, we're making up stories for a living. That's what we're doing. We're trying to like we're making up stories. Like I just want to be really That's super fair. clear. We're making That's up stories. Fair. Look, I mean, I think I'm demonstrating too. Like one of the things is perspective, right? What is a leader? A leader has to keep perspective for the organization, and a leader. First of all. I'm always asking leaders what they do. I am not, there are experts in leadership and I am not an expert on leadership. I'm just someone who tries to do the best that he can with his partner and a great team. The, 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 the best answer I can give is, is it's about perspective and, and mission and tone. And when you're trying to do artistic work with a big group of people, you are hope, hope that you can share what the tone 
and the vision and the mission for the piece is. Keep perspective on its place in the world and then um, allow the people you're working with to come up with their best ideas and then um, enlist them in understanding that ultimately you're going to be the person who, because of what the piece is, uh, decides on which of those ideas is going to get folded into the thing. Um, uh, as far as like hiring grips and gaffers, those people are so important in a way that it would take me days to explain. Um, mm. but the, the key is you hire a key grip and a gaffer who run their departments and you talk to them all the time and you build relationships with them and you there and, and you try to do what I'm talking about with them and you have line producers. Mm. I mean, um, and it making a long running series. Yes. There's the, the cast stays the same over the whole thing. And on billions, we've kept much of our crew together, but it, it's, I've talked to a lot of coaches about this and I'll, I, mm. you know, it is similar to a coach trying to get a team prepared to play and win, you know? Um, and yeah. that's what you're doing. I mean, most of it also, the other thing is, the first couple of years of Billions, I mean, Levine and I were on set from before anyone else till like, you know, we would just show up if call time was seven, Dave and I were there at 6.30. Not as like, not to make a big show of it either. It's just like, well, we're going to get there because we want to know and we want to be part of it and we want to learn and we want to answer any questions that people have. I mean, I can't tell you that in season six or five, I, you know, we're now coming up on seven. I'm, I'm there every morning at 6.30, but I'm, I'm still there a lot of the time at the beginning of the day. Like, and- um, you know, being around and, and being a part of process. And then when you find stars, I don't mean actor stars, you know, we bring, we've had a number of assistants who've become producers and writers mm -hmm. on the show. And so that's another way, right? You bring enough people up in the system and they, they carry the message of what the vision is and, the perspective and, and the mission. But I want to, you know, all of that is like, um, Dave and I are just trying to tell our stories in a compelling way. Um, and we're dealing with the actors all the time and we are the ultimate sort of creative authority on the piece. Um, but we're surrounded by wonderful people and, um, maybe years from now I'll be able to sort of like codify the lessons I've learned in how to do all of this, yeah. but I still don't feel like an authority on in any way on, on, um, on leadership. I mean, every day I'm just trying to get better at figuring all that stuff out to the best of my ability, you know? I can imagine, particularly when you write a screenplay for a two hour movie, say that you must, and maybe I'm wrong, but you must have a picture of what the film is going to look like in your head when you're writing it. And I think for a lot of us who produce content, whether that's sermon, whether that's a book, whether that's whatever yes. we're working on, um, we have a picture in our head of what it looks like, but then you get hundreds of people involved in a feature film. And I imagine at times there are healthy debates about whether it should go this way or this way or script changes, or well, perhaps sure. sometimes it turns out very differently. How do you handle that? How do you take, how do you tackle that as a creator? You I mean, look, you're, it, it, you're in different roles and different things. So that's the biggest part of what you're doing when is, is protecting all that. And, um, mm. you know, engage in these conversations. I mean, I think directness is really useful, but figuring out how to be direct 
and pleasant at the same time and how to direct, be direct and funny, how to be direct and empathetic, right? How to be direct and a good listener. So like all that stuff um, is part of how it works. Also in my business, there's just not really one answer. I mean, look, anytime, I would say one way to think about it is um, anytime you have an idea that starts as kind of a feeling, like a sermon would, a speech, there's a feeling, there's an idea, but that idea is kind of twinned with a feeling. Hmm. And often, once you start to work it, you, you sense something's getting lost in the translation, and it's very difficult to reconcile those things. But you don't, you can't let that stop you. You got to go through and write the first draft of it or put the first piece of it together and then keep at it. Like I would say one of the things David and I do really well is that we are incredibly rigorous about the final product we deliver. We're going to continue to question ourselves. I mean, that's one thing for sure about leadership, which is like, I am constantly questioning my own work. Uh, not in a, mm. not in an insecure way, not in a self-doubting way. Right. I'm not doubting. I'm questioning. Those are really different things. Uh, I'm just interrogating the work to make sure it's as strong as it can be. I'm not doubting it so that I'm thinking the whole foundation is going to crumble. But that kind of questioning allows you to go, is this as strong as it can be? What if these scenes were in a different order? What if this line was better? Right. What if this joke moved here? I mean, you're constantly looking at those things with the eye toward making it stronger, you know. One of the things you have to manage is great talent. You've had the privilege of working with some of the biggest names yes. in the industry. I mean, you know, Ocean's 13, that was an all-star cast. Um, there's a couple of elements I imagine because you were you involved in Oceans 11 and Oceans 12, or you came along and just wrote Oceans 13? No, and and no, I mean, um, we worked on 13, wrote it, and we were on set every day with the director Steven Soderbergh. And, um, no, that was a lot of pressure, and that was a lot of yeah, to do a lot of you know, if that didn't work, it was all just going to fall on us because like everyone else is great at what they do, so if that didn't get it, was just going to be on us, you know. <laughs> No, that was an incredible gift. I mean, being on that yeah. set. And that I'll say like, because we'd had this long relationship with Matt Damon, because he was in our first movie, between Matt and Steven Soderbergh, we worked very closely with Steven on the script. Entering that world was not just painless, it was really joyous because Matt put his literal, not just like sort of said, I mean, I remember showing up like the first or second day, Matt was there and he, he came running up and put his arms around the two of us and walked us into- Aww kind of where everybody else was and was like, these are my guys, these are my brothers. And like that, that gesture from Matt just immediately brought us into the whole thing and brought us on the inside, you know, and it was very valuable to us. That, that scene, uh, I think George Clooney is watching Oprah and, uh, yeah. <laughs> and Brad Pitt walks in. I mean, that's gotta be uh, just, that was such a powerful scene. And so, such a break from the movie, right? Where did that come from? I was, I was well, yeah, rewatching it the I mean, other that's night. Just, Dave, and I mean, that's one of the, okay, so that's one of the best things about getting to do this with your lifelong best friend is like, uh -huh. I mean, that's just, that's just, those two guys are just the cool version of me and Dave in that moment. And I remember, I mean, that, that happened, you know, um, I was watching Oprah and probably crying and Dave walked in and, and 
Um, but you know, if you're a writer, you kind of remember those things. And so I remember pitching uh-huh. that to Steven Soderbergh saying, we have this notion that this thing, and he thought it was hilarious. And, um, I think Brad and George knew that they were doing some version of us. And I remember being over in the corner of that room where the watching the monitors and rehearsing with Brad and George and just looking at Levine, like, how is this our lives? You know, we were young too, man. We were in our thirties, you know, maybe I just turned uh-huh. 40 or something, but we were shooting it. And I just remember looking at him and, uh, just thinking, this is crazy. That's Clooney and, and Brad. And they're basically just literally acting out um, a thing that happened with um, the two of us. It was great. And they were amazingly kind to us too. I'm sure they were. Um, talk about your your pretty much going back to elementary school or high school relationship with David Levine. I mean, that- I mean, that again, that's- Dave and I powerful. have podcasted together. I mean, it's too, it's so, like, look, he's- uh, David is um, as just the best person I know and and um, incredibly loyal and smart. And we really have been best friends since we were 14 and 15 years old. And so, I mean, you know, we've just been there through the birth of our fair children and our marriages and deaths of people and all the things. And um, so it doesn't, no part. It doesn't feel like he's my work partner. He is. We are each other's. We're work partners. But he's really my brother. And and it's the benefit of having a brother, without having any of the interfamily squabble <laughs> because we weren't raised. <laughs> we weren't trying to get the attention right. of the same parents. You know, so we don't have any of this the normal sort of problems that real brothers have because we chose mm-hmm. that we chose this. And I mean, it's we have a lot of weirds. Like our wives were born. We found this out later, but we were driving. Amy and I were just married and we were driving with David and Melissa. They had just started dating or they'd gotten serious. And so we were taking a trip together, like for a weekend somewhere. And one of them, one of our wives said her birthday, Melissa said her birthday. And we were like, what year? And, and David's wife and my wife were basically born at the same minute. <laughs> That's crazy. Then we met them and married them completely separate times. They, they were huh. born like at the same minute. It's weird. That's, that's bizarre. What have been some keys? Like, you know, you hear people, oh yeah, we wrote together for five years and then it didn't work out or we had a difference of opinion and went another way. What, what has kept the relationship alive respect. and fresh? All I mean, years? the answer is respect. Yeah. Like literally like yeah. respect from the littlest things to the biggest things, right? And, hmm. um, and the knowledge that all we're trying to do is make the work the best it can be and that we are both working toward exactly the same goal. Also, man, we've had real professional lows together and real professional highs, and we're just in it together. Um, it's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, look, we're, we, I used the word rigorous before. It's a really important word to me. And, and we're rigorous about truth with each other and we're rigorous about loyalty. And all that stuff was tested long before we had a professional partnership. And so, mm-hmm. um, there's never been a moment that we haven't been able to talk to each other about what's really going on. And, you know, we pick up each other's burden when we have to. And, um, you know, we're, uh, we don't, I would say this, we never keep score. And like, it's really important. And we keep scoring together as a team in the business. Yeah, but yeah. With each other, we never keep score. You did this work. I did that work. Hey, I made those three phone calls. I'm never one time, never one time in 25 years of working together. I never thought of this before. 
I never thought of this idea of score. I'm glad, like, but I'm, That's cool. I think it's really, I would advise that to anybody in a team, like make the choice. Don't keep score. Um, I just assume everybody's doing the best that they can. That doesn't mean don't ever criticize the other person. It doesn't mean don't, don't raise a hand and say, I need help. Hey, I need help doing this thing. Cause I'm working on it and I need you to help solve it. Or actually I've, I banged my head against this. I can't, can you do this when you have the, that's fine. But after that, it never once have either of us said, I did those four things. Where the hell were you? Like never one time. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's just, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think that makes each of us want to show up and do the, th- you know, really like do the thing. Um, and, and, and look, Dave's incredibly generous of spirit and, um, and, and, uh, and I, I think each of us try to really always think that the other one has our best interests at heart. And so I think in any relationship, marriage too, right? If you just frame everything your partner does, your marriage, you know, your, your spouse, if you can remind yourself that your spouse is doing what they can for the best reasons, and you frame it that it's the best reasons, not the worst, that also goes a long way towards stopping sort of petty jealousies and slights and things like that. So if you look at two of your biggest, most recent projects, Billions and Super Pump. So Super Pump yeah. tells the story of uh, Uber and its rise and sort of an inside scoop. And then Billions, the hedge fund financial picture in uh, New York. What drew you, you say you get obsessed with subjects, which is great, but what drew you to those two subjects as the stories that needed telling? I mean, Billions in particular has just exploded all over the place. It's a much watched series, well watched. Again, I think this is like a whole, I mean, it's a whole podcast, but the short answer would be, I mean, the short answer, here's the truth, right? All the answers someone would give you are kind of intellectualizations of a process that's really not an intellectual process. Um, It's uh, about a kind of an alchemy. And I can tell you the things that David and I noticed in the world that made us want to write about these kinds of people. I can say that when we started working on it, it was very clear that it was going to be the kind of thing that had the capacity to be life-changing and mm. that it was the kind of thing that we could dive into for years and years and years and years. It, it asks questions that uh, are very fundamental to modern civilization and to America right now. And so um, we'd certainly noticed long before Trump was even officially a candidate that qualities, uh, certain external qualities, or I'd say characteristics like verbal acuity, charisma, um, a kind of charm, um, a kind of personal power, were standing in for qualities of character like humility and empathy and caring and that um, Americans were celebrating just rich people for the sake that they were rich. And Mm. um, we were interested in looking at that, but there were a million different things and um, a million things we'd seen. And we'd noticed that prosecutors were, had King like powers. And so we thought we could, and that billionaires were basically nation states. And that if we set a nation state against the King, we could have a kind of Shakespearean construct and, you know, it, it bore out. Yeah, it really, really did. Well, there's 
You're right. There are podcasts upon podcasts here, but uh, we're definitely pushing an hour, Brian. Let's talk about your diverse friendships. So Tim Ferriss is a good friend. Seth Godin is a good friend. John Acuff is a good friend. You've mentioned a dozen other people. You seem like a highly relational person, but they're not all, you can't just go talk shop, right? Like Acuff doesn't make movies and Seth doesn't make movies or TV shows. So what drives your, um, what makes people interesting to you? Well, all those people are writers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're all writers. Yeah, that's true. There we're in is. the same, yeah. I think we're in the same business. Same I mean, business. we spend our lives, <laughs> I mean, we spend our, those people, right? We all spend our lives um, writing and communicating. Ah, that's true. And trying to, I mean, all those people are looking at the world and filtering it through their prism and then creating work that reflects the world they see or the world that they want to see. Um, I have incredibly high regard for each of those people. And yeah, all three of those people are people I've spent a good amount of time with away from this stuff. You know, they're people I've yeah, had yeah. multiple yeah. dinners with. Oh, and um, I mean, Seth's truly one of my best friends and, um, uh, you know, and, and John and Tim are each, uh, I, you know, Tim and I've been friends. I do all these people too, are people I've been friends with but now a long time. I met, I think I met Seth in, in 2011, maybe 2012. And, um, something like that. And the, and, and Tim around, right. Tim, I met right when four hour, the first book we work, we came out. So, yeah. um, I, I would say it's, as you get older, it's, it's harder to really make real friends. Um, but I'm all, you know, you, you find people along the way and if you do, and if you, you have to invest yourself in it. Uh, you have to give, uh, I, I've noticed that as a, an adult, adults, sometimes you can, I can get in this rhythm. I bet you can, cause you're of what you do and your curiosity where it's very easy for me to sit at dinner and just ask questions for an hour of the other person. Mm -hmm. But what I've realized is like, for someone to be a real friend, what you have to be willing to do is actually share your, what you're going through. You have to actually mutuality say, to it. Right? I'm having a bad day. And normally that's not, or I'm, I'm wrestling with something. Can I talk to you about it? And that's hard for men in particular as we get older, I think. And, but it's so valuable. Yeah. And so Seth and I do that all the time. You know, I, I will, um, you know, I'll go over to his place and, and, or he'll come to me and we'll talk. And, um, now I, I would say like, I've had some friends, um, my friend, David Sigerson, I was, is, uh, one of my very best friends for, almost 40 years now. And, and, um, uh, and, and, and Levine and, and I have, yeah, uh, it, these friendships are really important to me. I really value, uh, them and, and I'm, have high standards for my friends. I they demand uh, loyalty and, uh, they, you know, uh, demand it in return. But I mean, all three of those people you mentioned are just brilliant thinkers. And, uh, like I said, they're writers. So, and I'm also curious as you are. So, hmm. I mean, Seth, look, Seth in particular, <laughs> I mean, who better to like talk to about how someone should market one of my shows than Seth Godin and, um, and work and workflow. Those people are experts on, I mean, Tim, uh, and all three of those people are experts on workflow. And like, yep. I will definitely talk to them all about that, um, about issues related to producing work on a schedule and 
how do you make appropriate demands on other people producing work on a schedule? And I mean, I'll, you know, try to just like engage and, and, and talk about all that stuff. Um, and they're all funny too. <laughs> yeah, they are. They're fun. ACUF's hilarious. Fun, fun people. ACUF, ACUF, uh, they're all good. Honestly. I mean, and, I say, those are de- Those are people who work hard to be good and are good and um, do good in the, in the world, you know? And like John and I obviously see ma- ma- aspects of the world entirely differently. Um, but I was down in Nashville a few months ago and John and Jenny took me to dinner and like, we just had the best time laughing and talking and sharing our take on the world. And, and, and as different as we may see certain things, there's an essential humanity. Um, and when you open yourself up to people without judging them, but you're like, Hey, we're here and we laugh at a bunch of the same stuff. And isn't that wild that, you know, you went to an evangelical college and that's the central thing in your life. And, um, this, you know, I very different belief system. And yet both of us can look at the same, um, hypocrite on TV and laugh at that person together. And that's (laughs) amazing, you know? Well, and that's what I love about this show. That's what I love about the relationships we get to cultivate. And that's what I love about your show too, your podcast, The Moment. You have just a hugely eclectic guest list. I love it. I mean, it's a great way. I mean, that is, you know, I've uh, um, made friends that way. And um, it's, uh, what a great way to get to know somebody. I mean, we've done this and spent an hour with somebody talking, you know, you you really do kind of know them in a way that it might take, way longer to get to know them sort of if they were another parent at school of the kids and you were standing on the sidelines, um, you're up in Canada, I guess, while you're at the uh, curling competition or something, but, uh, <laughs> I'm one of six Canadians who doesn't like hockey and has never played curling, but, uh, if, do you play curling? No, you Wait, curl. That's it. You curl. Do you, do you like, hold that's on. It. Do you like rush? Oh yeah. Well, Neil Pert lives down the road. So I've, I've listened he to my did? show. He lived down the road from yeah, you? Yeah. 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 It's funny. Uh, yeah. Just, a, uh, he was a genius. Died a few a, years ago, but yeah, he was a genius, huge that guy. The guy, yes. I think the guy who did the electrical in my house did Neil Pert's house, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So. I had Getty Lee on the, I was saying we had, like, I had Getty Lee on the pod and, and he was in New York and willing to come. And one of the strangest things growing up, as you know, such a music fan and hard rock and Getty was so uh-huh. important to me. And I mean, that, there are certain things like as long as I've been doing this uh, and, you know, just I spend my life around such famous people that it doesn't mean anything. But that <laughs> knock on the door at my apartment, my little on the West Side and then Getty Lee was standing there. That was a really intense <laughs> moment for me. Surreal, right? What I a told him moment. too. I mean, I just was like, this is a re- Getty, you have to know. It's going to take me a second to I'll be professional, but you got to <laughs> give me like a minute and a half to be unprofessional, please. And then it'll all be great. And I, I text with them sometimes and I can't, I'm so careful uh, about. Oh yeah. We all have abusing people that. in our life that we're like, oh, should I send it? Should I not send it? Did I say that right? You check it with somebody. I just am careful yeah. about how often I'm yeah. just, I'm just judicious in how often I uh, initiate a back and forth with, with getting. Understood. Yeah. Understood. Brian, this has been a delight. Any final thought for leaders today? My pleasure. You're this really great. Uh, wonderful to talk to. And thanks for asking such good questions.
Well, that is fascinating, is it not? And uh, I love transcripts, man. We talked about so many different things and you're like, I haven't seen that movie. Well, we'll link to it in the show notes. So you can go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 529. Also, we have transcripts for the whole dialogue. I hope this was super helpful to you. Thank you to all of our new listeners. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It helps us get the word out. Even better, hit share and share it with some people you care about. They might be fascinated in the backstory as well. Uh, I absolutely love being able to do this with you and for you. And we got a new episode coming up next. Let me tell you about it. But first, our partners, have you yet registered to Compassion's Giving Tree for Christmas of this year? If not, you can go to compassion.com slash giving tree slash carry and help meet practical needs for child and poverty this holiday season. Get your whole church on board. And Lee Kreitzer's got a brand new book. It's called Seamless Pastoral Transition. He's got a bunch of free pastoral transition resources in addition to the book. You can find it all by going to futureforwardchurches.com. That's futureforwardchurches.com. Well, as hinted at, the next episode, John Acuff is back, but this time he brings his daughter, McCray. She's 16, and they are both now best-selling authors. John, a New York Times best-selling author. And we talk about, well, the next generation. It's a really fun, different interview. And here's an excerpt. Everyone has that like student pastor that's like, oh, I'm going to change these students' lives. And he throws off the like the lingo. Like I know someone that always talks about their inner vibes, trying to be all teenage <laughs> It's so cringy. <laughs> <laughs> so cringy. You are killing yeah, youth so pastors like, right this now. This helps your uh-huh. inner vibes. Because you don't think that person normally would say vibes and they're saying it to connect with you and it feels inauthentic. Uh-huh. Yeah. I just want them to be in like authentic to themselves because I'm not going to be like, oh man, he doesn't use the colloquialisms I use. I'm not going to respect what he's saying. I just want you to be genuine. And like when you try to be cool and talk to teenagers, it makes me like not want to listen to what you have to say. Also coming up, Erwin McManus, Chris Anderson, James Clear, Sean Cannell, Lisa Turkhurst, Patrick Lencioni, and a lot more. And thank you so much for listening. If you love this episode, and I hope you did, do leave us a rating and review, and I will give you something for free, whether you do that or not. Churches that aren't just surviving but thriving in this season share eight common traits. So if you want to weed out the unhealthy areas of your ministry and lead a thriving church, you can get your free copy of the Thriving Churches Checklist. And all you have to do, it's free, it's an ebook as well. Go to thrivingchurchchecklist.com. That's thrivingchurchchecklist.com. That's a gift from me to you. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And uh, well, I hope this finds you well. We'll catch you next time on the podcast. If you're new, subscribe. That way you'll never miss an episode. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. Thank you.